Pints with Jack, Season 3, Episode 15. Till We Have Faces, Part 1, Chapters 20 to 21, A Myth Retold. Good morning and welcome to Pints with Jack, a podcast where two enthusiastic C.S. Lewis amateurs get together, share a beverage and discuss a work of C.S. Lewis. This season, we're reading Till We Have Faces. My name is David, and I'm joined by Matt, did he look up the Greek names, Bush. I was wondering every single time, there were so many letters that I was trying to create something and don't hate, <laughs> and that's where I started with, and then I, well, I got nothing after that. <laughs> Listeners don't realize when on our notes, it just says D-H-L-U-T-G-N, so I was trying to fill in the gap. It's just a prompt to remind me of the name, but also done in such a way that Matt doesn't work out what it is. Yeah, every time. And to answer that question, no, he did not. <laughs> I think I'm I think I'm one out of every six, maybe I do, just to keep you on your toes. Uh, I think I think you're losing your potential to be called the brain of this season. Oh, I'm not the brain of this season. <laughs> At best I've just come close to um being on the level of the brain. Okay. Well, what are you drinking? Uh, drinking a honey chai turmeric tea, and it's absolutely delicious. Okay. Well, I'm finishing off the Scruble. As you remember, I had that a couple of weeks ago. That was the peanut butter-based whiskey. Uh, I actually shared it with Marie last night, and she rather liked it. Wow. That's, I don't, you know what? I don't think that says good things about Marie. <laughs> it says wonderful things about Marie because it means we're in sync. It says you can buy bad scotch and dish it off to her and then you can enjoy the good stuff. No, that girl has expensive tastes. She she <laughs> likes all of the stuff I do. Oh, that's great. Well, that's a keeper then. And what's the quote of the week? I have two and I didn't select between the two because they both have a lot of wisdom in them. So the first one I loved because this reminds a lot of C.S. Lewis and I thought his teaching on theosis, actually, and playing it out in here. Whether he meant that or not, that's the connection I got. But it's when Orwell is talking to, or the queen in this case, is talking to that priest who's telling the story of Istra, which is Orwell's sister and them. And the priest says, For you must know that, like many other gods, she began by being immortal, being a mortal, by the way. And it just made me think of Lewis so much that we go from the natural life, this mortal life, to this divine life, immortal. And I don't know if Lewis meant that, but because that's one of the most profound things Lewis has taught me, the son of God became man to enable men to become sons of God, I wanted to put that in there. But for this more chapter-specific one, I liked the queen has essentially built up this entire false self that she's done to protect or honestly to harbor away the, the Orwell of her life. And she acknowledges as she's, all the distractions are going away and she's going into her room. She says this, it was so with me almost every evening of my life. One little stairway led me from feast or council, all the bustle and skill and glory of queenship to my own chamber to be alone with myself. That is with a nothingness. I think there's a lot of profoundness in that with a nothingness. If you build this false self up and you hide your true self, all you're going to end up being is you're going to go home and realize when you're alone with yourself, there's nothing, at least nothing of substance. And, oh, I love that. That's it. Well, on that very depressing note, cheers. <laughs> cheers. Well, now I got to pick that up. The whole moral of that is find your true self and you won't have nothingness. <laughs> there is hope to that. 
You see, you could have put those quotations around the other way and then you've ended on an upbeat. That would have been a great idea. So I would like to personally apologize to all of the listeners who have just been (laughs) bummed out by Matt. I'll do what I can to pick you up over the next 45 minutes. (laughs) This is why, David, you are here. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's true. So what have you been up to this week? This week? Well, we had a pretty fun weekend. We're recording this. It's the beginning of the week. so. But we were both on the Quizzical Papers podcast, which was a blast. It was a lot of fun. And so, first of all, just a shout out to you guys. Go check out that podcast. I had no idea what to expect. And full disclosure, Grace and Liz are going to absolutely hate me since they listen to this podcast. I didn't actually listen to any episodes in preparation. And partly once I, I thought about it and then I said, you know, I'm going in blind. This is going to be even better. But then I was really nervous because I realized it was going to be trivia. And I'm thinking to myself, Matt knows nothing of trivia. Grace, Father Brad, see what I have to work with here. <laughs> but the thing if, is, if it makes you feel any better, it's the same for when he's recording us. It's like, I'm just going to go in blind. <laughs> yes, it's, it's my charm, and my magic. But the, the short answer for listeners, what I took away from actually being on that is... It's not as important about getting the questions right or wrong. They provide the, obviously the answers and the depth behind the question. And there's some really interesting facts and they're very applicable. So Grace did a wonderful job connecting them to Lewis that I appreciated, or at least starting with the Lewis connection. Yeah. She basically went through each of Lewis's book titles and then found a tangential question in that area. So for example, on the screw tape letters question, it was actually a question about a, a certain Latin phrase and where can that be found? And it, it's related to exorcisms. Yeah, no, so those questions, they, some of them were really difficult. Yes, David, we, we ended up, we, this will be released after that's released. So we ended up winning the most points and it was out of 80 points, maybe like 12 questions accumulated. I think I calculated in my head, I would have got 30 of them without David. And I think David without me would have got all 84 points still. <laughs> uh, I, do, I did particularly like the one question where it was referring to the religious order that uh, a particular church dignitary belonged to. And Matt had met him just a couple of weeks ago. So in the chat, I asked him, was he wearing his habit? What color was it? And then he listed off about five or seven colors. And it's like, okay, so that's not going to be any use. <laughs> I thought to myself, well, they're dark colors. That might help. <laughs> Uh, well, David, this is getting released, what, probably three or four weeks from when we're recording this? Yeah, they, their episode will no doubt have come out before. But what I'll do is I'll, I'll sneak in a bonus episode into our feed where you can get to hear a little bit of it. And it'll give you a good prompt, if you haven't already, to go and subscribe to The Quizical Papist, which we probably should have said is basically a Catholic pub quiz. Yes. So let's get on and do chapter 20. The king is cremated, Redeval's betrothed, legends of the queen's greatness spread. Meanwhile, she repeatedly moves her sleeping quarters in an attempt to escape the sound of the well, which reminds her of Psyche's weeping. She attempts to track down her lost sister, but without success. Batter is executed, many slaves are freed, the silver mines are improved, bringing prosperity. A library is founded, the legal code renewed, and the Senate is engineered for trade. The queen gets to know, and is underwhelmed by, Bardia's wife, Ansit. The queen contemplates how much more she gets to share with Bardia. Arnhem renovates the temple and installs a beautiful statue of Ungit, Aphrodite. The fox writes a history of Glome. In his dotage, he begins calling the queen by other names. He eventually dies, 
The chapter ends with the queen deciding to visit neighboring lands. So that's my summary of this chapter. And as you can tell, just like a lot of stuff happens. Yeah, we're going to... I was thinking about this in preparation. We're going to have to make sure we go through them quickly <laughs> to be able to fit this into one one episode. Because this, uh, we, we probably want to protect a little bit of time to discuss this. This is the, the summation of all of part one. So there's some good commentary we can do at the end of this chapter or this two chapters. Oh, well, in that case, let's get going. So we're told at the beginning of the chapter that the king is now being cremated. Uh, they marry off Redival very quickly and pretty much everybody leaves the palace and it's nice and quiet when they've all gone. And the queen then says that she's going to recount much of what has happened. And I think most people estimate this is probably about 40 years worth of material. Uh, and she tells us that the trajectory of recent chapters continues over the course of that time. Insofar as she says, I must now pass quickly over many years, though they made up the longest part of my life during which the Queen of Gloam had more and more part of me and Oral less and less. I locked Oral up, or laid her asleep as best as I could, somewhere deep inside me. She lay curled there. It was like being with child, but reversed. The thing I carried in me grew slowly smaller and less alive. This is going to be interesting because we're going to see throughout this chapter, she's trying to bury her, maybe her identity or true self or that part of her she feels shame or hurts her wounds. As we've probably all learned in real life, you never succeed at that. No matter how hard you try, that part of you will constantly come back at various moments. A trigger of someone, a thought, something someone says or does to you brings out that shame if you haven't dealt with it, that hurt, that wound. And so it'll be interesting to see that play out in this chapter. I like how Lewis communicates it. Yeah, it's quite, quite a horrific image. It's kind of like a reverse pregnancy. Yes, the Queen talks about how the stories of her own deeds are already being exaggerated and even merged into stories of some other warrior queen from long ago. Uh, but she's very candid. She credits her military success to Bardia and another chap called Penowen. And she's honest enough to admit to being frightened when she was in these battles where she was known as this great warrior. And she reflects on her reign and she identifies two key strengths. The first is the combination of counsellors that she has, Bardia and the Fox, who seem to be a really great dyad, a really great combination, with each covering the deficiencies of the other. And because they both love her, neither are self-serving. And what was kind of funny, she says she even comes to realise that the jabs that they would take at one another, um, it was more of a game than anything else. And honestly, anyone that's hung around guys should really know this. <laughs> this is how men are, particularly with each other. We mock because we love. That's exactly what. So I'm, I have a very close relationship with my grandfather. And when he had a stroke, I actually went back home and helped him through that. And so we were in Chicago and he would always call me, uh, excuse my, well, I don't know if we have kids listening to this, smart donkey <laughs> and a bunch of other expressions of similar nature. Um in a uh, little poop head, I guess, if you want to call it that, if that as well, <laughs> just in case any children, we have had listeners email us saying they listened to it with their children. And the, the people at first were like a little taken aback, not realizing that was like our love language. Seriously. <laughs> Abuse. Abuse. <laughs> Abusive language. Uh, I love him. One other thing that she comments in that section is she says that neither of them thought of her as a woman. And that led them to being at great ease with her. 
I'm still not quite sure what to make of this, but there's definitely this theme throughout about the defeminization of Orwell, of her killing that part of her and taking on masculine traits. The second thing that she credits much of her success to is her veil. And she says that when she started wearing the veil all of the time, people then started paying attention to her voice. Once again, they actually compare it to a man's voice in some way. But she says that they also began to discover all manner of beauties, the voice of a spirit, a siren, or Orpheus. So Matt, what's a siren? Who is Orpheus? Yep, this is one of the five six. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you find sirens in Greek and Roman mythology, particularly in the Odyssey. Oh, is that they the one based- where they're going by the ship? They're on a ship yeah. and the sirens are, are calling them and they're basically yes. luring the sailors to their death, which is actually, you might describe somebody as having a siren voice, but the sirens were baddies. They ultimately ended up killing those who came near them, which, given Orwell's journey, is not particularly great. I knew that one. Not this next one, though. <laughs> and Orpheus was a legendary musician. He was also a poet, and he's also sort of a prophet in Greek mythology. So people would start to notice her voice more. And she says that over time, people ended up rejecting the idea that her veil just hid an ugly face. Uh, some people, she points out the women, the women thought that she had a hideous face of an animal. Uh, some thought that she had no face at all, which I think is significant. Do we have faces? All that stuff. Uh, and she says that the men often thought that she had the face of a true beauty, like Psyche. And she was veiled uh, because either she would drive men crazy uh, or she would bring uh, Ungit's wrath upon Gloam because of her great beauty. Uh, I think it definitely tells you something of how the queen regards the sexes, that women are essentially jealous and the men are essentially lecherous. And in in what traits they like as well, because they're, they're, all they can judge her based on is her, her wisdom, her ability to lead, her strength. Uh, her counsel, her abilities, talents, and because of that, they tend to find her beautiful. And she says that the final thing that the veil did is it gave her a real advantage in negotiations. She said, the upshot of all this nonsense was that I became something very mysterious and awful. I have seen ambassadors who were brave men in battle turned white like scared children in my pillar room when I turned and looked at them, and they couldn't see whether I was looking or not, and were silent. I have made the most seasoned liars turn red and blurt out the truth with the same weapon. So there's something about when she hides her face, it reveals the hearts of men. Hmm. I didn't actually think of that statement. Again, I'm not 100% sure what I want to conclude from that, but I think it's significant. Yeah, you're making me think right now, and I wish something came to me more quickly. That men, when they're in a state of fear, it's almost as if... Like, let's think about the true self, false self. Remember what I said earlier of there's moments in life where our true self that we've out of shame or those hurts, those wounds that we've pushed down and things call, call them up. It's almost like this interaction with her, someone who has such a strong false self, honestly, a stronger one than yourself brings out your fears. I don't know where I'm going with that. There might be something there. <laughs> one thought I do have is that Perhaps this could be some reason why the gods veil themselves to help reveal our true selves to ourselves, that if we saw their face, that might not happen. I'm not sure. It's a good thought. I like it. Anyway, in an earlier chapter, Orwell 
told us that she mistook the sound of the chains of the well for Psyche's crying. And she now writes that as queen, she repeatedly moves her sleeping quarters around the palace to try and get further and further away from that sound. Because she said in the middle of the night, when the silence grows deep, she would hear it and it would basically be torturing to her. And she later says that she'd even go and hide in the pillar room and do some work to distract her, even in the middle of the night. And she describes this part of her as Orwell refusing to die. And she tells us that she had people try and find Psyche. You know, now she's queen, she's got people and resources that she can draw upon, but without any real success. And she writes, Psyche must be dead now, or caught by someone and sold into slavery. There is, I just wanted to pause here for a moment because this is, there's a lot of wisdom in this section on its own. It goes back to what I said earlier. We, we all put on these false selves, these walls to win the love of the world, to, to mask our shame and our hurts. And she does this. And that self of you that you're trying to bury, if people listen to my talk, which I have edited, I need to send to you now from Notre Dame. I like talk about my false self, this little Maddie Bush from high school. And I'd, I'd shove it way down with my accomplishments, with success, but you never can really get rid of it. You have to actually live into it. And now I'm starting to see that in Jean Valjean, actually, in Les Mis. And I'm not going to go on a tangent there, but for people who have seen, read Les Mis or seen that, I mean, his old self comes back to haunt him at various points after his redemption. And I'm only one sixth away in, so I don't know what else happens in it. But it's just, that's just, there's so much truth in that. You have to live out of your true self and your identity and not be ashamed of it. So you haven't read Les Miserables or seen the movie or the musical? No, I almost wanted to after getting the book. I was like, all right, this is way too long. I should just go watch the musical. I know it's great. But then I said, no, Matt, delayed gratification. This is a chance for growth. Wow. I know. I'm proud of you. I know. Delayed gratification to me do not go, get along very well. Well, that's a very long book. So you can give us updates as we go through seasons three, four, and five. <laughs> I will, because it's incredible. And it connects to a lot of this, actually. Moving on. We find out that before the end of her first year as queen, Orwell has Batter hanged. Brutal. Yeah. I, I found the English rather hard to parse. This is what she writes. I found that she had long been the pest of the whole palace. No trifle could be given to any of the other slaves, and hardly a good bit could come on their trenches, but Batter must have her share of it. Otherwise, she'd tell such tales of them as would lead to the whipping post or the mines. And I basically interpreted that as saying that Batta was extorting the other slaves under the threat that she would tell stories about them. And when those stories got to the appropriate people, they'd get in trouble and be punished. What did you make of that from Orwell? Because we see a wise Orwell, a just Orwell. And it's not that this isn't just, maybe it is and deserve it, but it, it was like, whoa, this is a bit intense. <laughs> I don't doubt the truth that Batta is a bit of a pest. Uh, but the idea of hanging a woman for that mm -hmm. seems a little harsh. That's what I thought too. I don't think the judge is entirely impartial on this matter. <laughs> it, it, it's kind of like being a judge and then having somebody come before you who bullied you in high school and uh, they're, they've been charged with parking illegally and then you give them the, you give them the electric chair. That's, that's what I felt like. It made me not like Orwell, just even a little bit more. Hmm. But she then says things that we like, because she then says that she reduces the number of slaves in the palace, and she sells the ones of dubious morality, uh, and she sets free the better and more competent ones. 
And she even seems to play something of the role of Yenta from Fiddler on the Roof, the, the role of matchmaker between her slaves. Uh, although she says that sometimes she would let them choose their own spouses. She would let Eros move as he would. And she says that many of these ended up living close to the palace and being fiercely loyal to her. And she frees Pooby, and she ends up actually spending much of her time with Pooby and her husband in their home. And I just couldn't help but feel that in this, she was both pushing people away, but at the same time, building a replacement family. I read it, and you're making me think here a bit, but I read it a little differently. I almost read it as Lewis trying to, <clears throat> in the best way he could with Orwell, because she has such a distorted love. But there's examples here of gift love almost. Like if you free them, now I know it's not selfless. I mean, some of this is probably selfish motivated, but notice that she found her happiest moments when she actually freed someone. So Pooby, rather than like the fox she freed, but she like couldn't let go of the fox and wanted to hold him tight, hold him close. Pooby, it sounds like just really let Pooby go. And you know what? The happiest moments, because she probably experienced for the first time that Pooby truly loved her. Pooby didn't need her anymore, and Pooby didn't could have just left. But at least I get that sense Pooby could have left, and yet she felt her happiest moments. I like that. Although I'm also a little suspicious, was Orwell still engineering this in such a way that they get the freedom, but not really? That is a fair suspicion. <laughs> it's not misplaced. <laughs> no. Uh, but she then goes and does another good thing. She says that she completely overhauls the management of the mines and uses them to generate profit rather than simply being a means of punishment and effective execution. <laughs> she tells us that she treats the slaves better and offers them the ability to regain their freedom. And this change in strategy results in much wealth coming to gloam. It's so wise what she did. I was impressed Smart. with that. It was. I was very impressed with that. Human incentives, they are a strong driver in the world. Just to be clear, Matt and I do not endorse slavery in Mindslay. <laughs> yes, I felt like that needed to be said. The queen then tells us a little bit more about the fox. She gives him much nicer apartments. Uh, they're actually on the same side of the palace as the squeaky well. <laughs> and she gives him some land so that he can have some form of independent wealth. So she's not... So that he isn't dependent upon her. And if we go with your earlier theory, this is a really good thing. This is her giving him some liberty after she effectively begged him to stay. Maybe she's growing. Maybe, you know what? I honestly, I don't, I've read this book and I don't know if this is a correct statement or not, but maybe this is subtle examples of growth. I've been focusing as this whole last like 10 chapters of just the massive buildup of the false self and death of the, the true self. But maybe there's something where she's peaked and now she's subtly going in the other direction. I don't know. Mm. I'm, I'm starting to be convinced. She also gives the fox money to start a library, uh, which is slow going and expensive. He calls it an obel's worth for a talent. Uh, so an obel is about a sixth of a drachma and a talent is about 6,000 drachma. So he's basically saying we're spending an awful lot of money and getting very little in return. Way to look that up. You're welcome. <laughs> and in the end, they end up with about 18 books. Uh, there's an incomplete version of Homer's Iliad, which is a story of war and adventure. There's Andromeda by Euripides, and that's a romance. Uh, there's the Bacchae, also by Euripides, which is a tragedy. 
There's a book on animal husbandry because you know she's a, a good state leader and she's wanting Gloam to flourish. There's also some works by Socrates, or if you've seen Bill and Ted's most excellent adventure, it's correctly pronounced Socrates. No, I have not. Oh man, it's a great movie. You, you do need to watch that. I actually heard number three is coming out. They got Keanu Reeves back to do a third one. I love Keanu Reeves, so I will watch it now. Number one is great. Number two is a bit silly, but it's kind of entertaining. Uh, we will see about three. I'm, I'm trying to keep my expectations really low. It's a good idea. And the remaining books, uh, there was a poem in honor of Helen. Uh, and remember, Helen was this great beauty that resulted in the War of Troy. Uh, which given Psyche's own beauty and the consequences of that, maybe there's a little bit of a hint to that. Uh, there's a book by Heraclitus. And lastly, she mentions the opening lines to a book, which is Aristotle's Metaphysics. And she tells us that not only does the fox read them, but also the new priest. And over time, the sons of nobles also continue to join them. So it's like a mini university. The learning in, in Gloam develops. No thoughts on that? Okay. I didn't have a lot to say on the books. <laughs> I guess the thoughts could be they're all very rational and practical books. Really mm, feeding. Yeah, but, no, but you've also got action and adventure and romance, stories of great beauty. Any about the gods, though? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You, you, don't, you actually can't really have Greek literature that doesn't mention the gods somewhere. I mean, um, like the unget type sacrificial, not like the Greek and rational fox gods that he says are just mythology. Uh, yeah, the the LA ad is littered with that stuff. Gotcha. Just struck me as these were all the rational, the Fox type stuff. Things that he likes um, in, in the part. Because remember she says earlier she put to death all of the stuff and belief in the religious things and started focusing on the Greek stuff and the, the battle stuff and all of her false self things. The practical, she actually says the hunting. So it's like these books list almost repeat everything she said she was focusing on a while ago. So I thought it was a little interesting. Next up, the queen meets Bardia's wife. Uh, her name is Ansit, and the queen is not very impressed. She said, I had thought she would be of dazzling beauty, but the truth is she was very short, and now, having borne eight children, very fat and unshapely. And the queen comments that she, having remained a virgin, had kept her figure. She goes on and says that she even tried to be kind to Ansit, even loving. Those were her words. However, she doesn't really get anything from Ansit. She's very quiet. And the queen tells us that she joyfully wondered whether Ansit is actually jealous of her, given that the queen gets to be with Bardia throughout the day and share in battles and affairs of state. She writes, I have known, I have had so much more of him than she never dreamed of. She's his toy, his recreation, his leisure, his solace. I'm in his man's life. And she comments that in all of this, Bardia's is kind of oblivious. She says, It's strange to think how Bardia went to and fro daily between queen and wife, well assured that he did his duty by both, as he did, and without a thought, doubtless, of the pother he made between them. This is what it means to be a man. The one sin the gods will never forgive us is that we were born women. So apparently the joy of being a man is to be blissfully unaware. <laughs> I wonder if this is how Joy viewed Jack. What do you make of that whole section when she's talking about Bardia's wife? Well, first of all, <clears throat> the irony of the joy of being a man is to be blissfully unaware. She seems quite unaware in many things in life 
um, particularly with the palace and the gods and stuff, but setting that aside, maybe she's not blissfully unaware. She's unblissfully unaware, <laughs> if that's a word. I made it up. Miserably aware. Miserably aware. There we go. But I would say, I, I was thinking to myself, as she notices that she's unattractive, did not a small part of her worldview there get broken a little bit that, oh, hey, someone unattractive is actually loved. And, oh, maybe you can be loved despite your attractiveness or your allure or your beauty. And obviously she didn't make any statement about picking up on that, but that's what I was actually thinking in that section. Could have been therapeutic for her. And maybe she is beautiful. Maybe, once again, it's seeing and perceiving. Ah, ooh, I like that. Mm. Yeah, she doesn't have the best perception, so we're reading it through her eyes. And maybe Bardia can see true beauty. Yeah, and also just the very fact that she seems to rejoice in the fact that she gets part of Bardia that his wife doesn't, which is a horrendous idea. Yeah, there's her selfish side coming out again. Well, next we hear about the temple, because there have been great changes in the house of Unget. The new priest, Arnim, he we're told that he keeps the temple cleaner and it's more airy. And it seems that he's had a lot of interaction with the fox and the fox has started to make Arnim sound more and more like a philosopher rather than a priest. And we're told that the big change is that Arnim has installed, and the queen paid for, a beautiful Greek-style statue of Ungit. Or if it's Greek-style, I suppose we call it Aphrodite. And this statue is placed opposite the faceless Ungit stone that we've heard about until now. Well, I like here this next section, because this is another example of what I've been saying in this chapter. We see the haunting chains coming back up, her false self peeping out again. She tried to bury. Yeah, I found this very strange because it seems to suddenly jump to this in the text. Yes. It's like she was talking about the temple, talking about Ungit, and then immediately we just go straight back to the fact that the chains are still bothering her. And so rather than trying to get away from them, she just decides to put a house, a wall around the, the well in an attempt to block out the sound. Maybe it's not coincidental that the juxtaposition is right after the temple, <clears throat> which is so much the gods and the parts so that reminds her of this. And that is a big wound of her. Like almost like deep down, she knows that she did experience the gods and then she repressed it and then lied about it and then used that against psyche and then honestly screwed psyche. And it's, it's like the gods remind her of that. So I never, I didn't even think twice about that, but I think you're right. That's not, that's not unintentional. Yeah, I, I, th I think your assessment's correct. And we actually find out that it just leads to a different kind of torture for a while. Uh, she starts to think that she has walled up, not a well, but Psyche herself. And there was another oddity in this piece of text. As soon as she said that, she says it was that year afterwards that we defeated Asur. I think there's something significant there. Again, don't quite know what yet. <laughs> But it was, again, just an odd sentence to throw in after you're talking about a well to suddenly have a military victory. Yeah, we're going to have to see. Okay, I'm taking that. That's definitely a clue. Excellent. <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> uh, we then hear again about the fox. And he's getting old now. And he's less involved in affairs of state. Uh, and it does kind of seem like the queen is starting to neglect him a bit more. Yes. Which is a bit harsh. Bit harsh considering that she begged him to stay. But he's spending his time writing a history of Gloam, and he writes it twice, once in Greek and once in Gloam's own language. And according to the Queen, very clumsily. 
Now, maybe just the student has surpassed the master, or I don't know, maybe there's something in it that she can't see. It just disappointed me that she neglected him. There's signs of some good stuff in this chapter, but then there's the old stuff again. I mean, this guy gave up everything for her. And when she doesn't need him anymore, she doesn't go and love on him. She doesn't yeah. see him very often. That just, that really disappointed me. More than hanging of Bata. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and she does say that he's changed somewhat. Uh, more concerned with poetry and less with philosophy. Interesting. Hmm. I would say probably beauty. I think he's, it's more, he's leaning more on the imaginative rather than the rational side of himself, maybe. Get close to death and that happens. And she also says that he quite often mistakes the queen for Psyche. And naturally, I went back to the God's words when he says, you too shall be Psyche. Maybe this has something to do with it. Uh, But she also says that he calls her by some other names. And I went and looked them up, and it's one girl's name and two boys' names. Uh, who do you think these were? Do you just like embarrassing me in front of thousands of listeners? No, no, this isn't, <laughs> this isn't a question of looking at the Greek people. I am pretty convinced that these are the names of his own children, that in his old age, when he, sit, when he, sees, uh, when he sees the queen, he thinks of his own children back somewhere in the Greeklands. Oh. Crethis, I think, is his daughter. And the other two, uh, Charmides and Glaucon, are his sons. And and when I went and did a little bit more poking around on those names, uh, both of them associated with people like Plato and Socrates. And I don't know, I can imagine that uh, those would be the sort of names that, if I was the fox, those are the kinds of names that I would choose for my sons. Those are strong names. Yeah. If anyone out there is pregnant, uh, maybe consider these names. <laughs> we'll send you a pint glass. <laughs> yes, if you if you call uh, if you call your son Glaucon, we'll send you a pint glass. We'll send you two. <laughs> one for you uh, and one for him when he turns eighteen, because he's going to need it. <laughs> uh, I think may, may, maybe for the other spouse as well, because <laughs> both people need to be on board with this. Uh, Uh, And we also would like to apologize to anybody who actually is called Glaucon. (laughs) Finally, we're told that the fox dies and he's given a great funeral and he's given a tomb near those pear trees where the three of them, the fox, Psyche and Oral, where they suspend all of that time together. And then scooting through the chapter, the queen lists out all of the other things that she's done. She's made very busy. She's revised and published the laws. She's engineered the Shenet, the river, for trade. She's built a bridge. She made cisterns to store water. She's improved the state of the livestock. And just here, I wanted to encourage people to go and check out uh, Brenton Dickinson's blog. It's A Pilgrim in Narnia. And at the time of recording, it was actually today, he just released an article where he's comparing and contrasting Orwell and the king in their respective reigns. He points out things like they both have rage issues, how they treat the people at court, and also how they relate to Psyche. But the important point, I think, in this chapter is that there's all this activity, but it basically seems to mean nothing. Glad the quote that I picked resonates with what you think is the most important part of the chapter. Yeah, well, the second. You you had hedged your bet, so... (laughs) But the Queen says, I did and I did and I did. And what does it matter what I did? I cared for all these things only as a man cares for a hunt or a game, which fills the mind and seems of some moment while it lasts, 
but then the beasts killed and the kings mated, and now, who cares? It was so with me almost every evening of my life. One little stairway led me from feast or council, all the bustle and skill and glory of queenship to my own chamber, to be alone with myself, that is, with a nothingness. I would have a lot to say here, but I already did with the quote around it. <laughs> well, I, the only thing I really wanted to add here, it was actually a quotation that Peter on the Slack channel posted the other day. It comes from one of uh, Lewis's letters. It's volume one of his collected letters. Lewis himself wrote, never confuse who you are with what you do. Everyone that God creates has infinite value and worth simply by existing. Orwell is putting all of her stock in what she does, in living out this persona as queen. But she has value in and of herself, and she's hiding from it. And she starts feeling really restless. And as queen, she decides, I'm going to go and take a trip. And she takes with her Elodia, which is Bardia's son, and also Alet, which is Poopy's daughter. And one thing I found very telling in the section when she's talking about the trip, she says that she can now do this because Gloam basically runs itself. And she uses the language of child rearing. She's describing herself as the mother of Gloam. And given what we've said before about Oral's motherhood of Psyche, I think it's really interesting that she is willing and able to let Gloam function and get on with life without her. Getting closer to her true self. Yeah. Okay, then we're on to chapter 21. In early autumn, the queen visits her sister and Trunia in Fars. Their second son, Duran, is set to inherit the throne. The queen says that she would like to love him, but has vowed to love no more. The queen's retinue travel to Assur. In a forest, the queen finds a tiny temple which contains a small statue of a woman wearing a black veil. The temple's priest tells her the story of their patroness, the new goddess, Istra. It soon becomes clear that this is the story of Psyche, but with some important differences. The priest says that Ungit has set Istra tasks to complete before Istra can be reunited with her husband, which is symbolized each spring and summer by the statue's veil being removed. Irate, the queen storms out of the temple, determined to write a book recounting her own version of events. Yeah, we're about to get into a fun chapter here. This, this, it's, it's quick to get to the main part. So like getting there is not going to take a lot, but then when you get there, I mean, I have a lot of good stuff here and there's a lot of, there's a lot that comes together right now. And even some of the major themes or issues come out in this chapter here. Cause just for listeners, this is the last one of part one. Mm-hmm. So the queen heads out on her road trip and she's visiting her sister Redival and her husband Trunia in Fars. We're told that they arrive around harvest time and say they're about a week and a half. And her assessment of her sister was not favorable in the same way that she uh, dissed Bardia's wife. This was her description of Redival. It depends on your perspective, though. She might describe it as favorable. <laughs> I was astonished to see how Redival had grown fat and lost her beauty. She talked, as of old, everlastingly, but all about her children and asked after no one in Gloam except Bata. So I have several points here. I wonder how that conversation went. It's like, oh, how's Bata? Well, her neck is a little longer. <laughs> well, she hasn't said anything for ages. Uh, but one thing that I think is also worth pointing out, she says that Redival talked, she always talked a lot, but now she talks about her children. Yes. 
And I would say that's a good thing. Parents yep. should brag about their kids. It's kind of annoying at times, but parents think that their kids are the greatest. I got the sense that it was a good example of Redival, who was petty, gossipy, somewhat of a brat, cared just about getting married off, cared about looks, to, you know what, she doesn't really care about that anymore. She kind of let go of herself. But in this, in the way that it's, she found out what's truly important. She found out that loving her children is the most important thing in her life. And so I, I looked at it as really great development for Redival. But I was curious why she asked for Bata. I mean, I don't think that's, Lewis is trying to communicate something there. Is he trying to say that Redival was very much a part of the gossipy side of things uh, in, or what? Well, we know that they spent a lot of time together. Bata was probably the person that she spent most time with in Gloam. So I think that's, that's fair. I mean, if by this point the fox has died, she didn't seem to have that much to do with Bardia. The father's dead. Who else is left? Yeah, fair point. Now, Orwell says that Trunia, her husband, never listened to his wife. Mm, I'm not so sure about that. But she says that he and Orwell, the queen, they had much to talk about. And this is very similar to what the queen said about Bardia's wife. Uh, the fact that she has much more in common with the man and has more of him than his wife. And this is where we find out that Daran, uh, Trunia, and Redival's second son will ascend to the throne of Gloam when the queen dies. And this is actually what we find out in the opening lines of chapter one of the book. And then the queen writes something quite chilling about her nephew and heir. This Daran was, for the son of so silly a mother, a right-minded boy. I could have loved him if I had let myself. And if Redival had been out of the way. But I would never give my heart again to any young creature. And I think it's really interesting that she says any young creature. And then we find out almost immediately afterwards that her retinue is made up almost entirely of young people. <laughs> so is this a secret desire that she has, that she wants them around her, but she still wants to keep them at a distance? And naturally, her comment about deciding not to love anything anything young and wonderful ever again put me in mind of a line from The Four Loves that we've quoted a few times. Uh, and I think it's worth quoting in full here. This is in The Four Loves, where Lois says, There is no safe investment. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. And then he goes on to offer a warning. And this is a warning that the Queen should have listened to. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and the perturbations of love is hell. Marie just put that in the Slack channel a few days ago, everyone. We get some good stuff going on in there, so this is just a shout out. So help us on Patreon at the second tier and you can join this fun community that shares this stuff. And you can save us some work. We don't have to do quite so much research if everybody's giving us their answers already. It's exactly right. <laughs> that's our whole. That's the whole goal of it outsource all of this. So after they spent some time with Redival and her family, uh, 
they travel to Assur. And the Queen comments that her entourage, while they were initially a little scared of her, they begin to feel at ease. And they leave Fars and they travel westwards to Assur and they spend a few nights there. And naturally, she doesn't think much of the king or his wife. Uh, and she intends to go home, but then they hear that there's a hot spring about 15 miles west. And she knows that Bardia's son would want to visit, so they go. And during the journey, the queen makes a decision, which is quite amazing. She decides that when she returns to Gloam, that she and Bardia, they're going to rest. Uh, they're going to rest and let younger heads be busy while we sit in the sun and talk of old battles. So I think it's good that she's willing to let go of the reins. But at the same time, she's going to release Bardia from his responsibilities, but only so that he can spend more time with her. <laughs> she's always got another motive. It's great. Now, they see the spring, and the queen doesn't seem very impressed. She, You know who she reminds me of? Remember the hard-bitten ghost in The Great Divorce, where everything's rubbish? Yes. She's kind of channeling him at the moment. She just doesn't allow herself to feel joy anymore. Mm. She doesn't allow herself to experience wonders. She's just, that's what happens when you wall yourself up. You know what? The world just doesn't, isn't that great anymore. She's walling herself up like she walled up the well. Mm. Anyway, after they've seen the spring, they go find a place to camp and she wanders into the forest and she hears the sound of a temple bell and wanders off to go find it. And she then discovers this tiny little, tiny little temple. Uh, She says it was in the Greek style and it was inside very cool and silent. She says it was clean and empty and there was none of the common temple smells about it. So I thought it must belong to one of those peaceful gods who are content with flowers and fruit for sacrifice. Then I saw it must be a goddess, for there was on the altar the image of a woman about two feet high, carved in wood. Not badly done, and all the fairer to my mind, because there was no painting or gilding, but only the natural pale colour of the wood. The thing that marred it was a band or scarf of some black stuff tied round the head of the image so as to hide its face, much like my own veil, but mine was white. I thought how much better all this was than the house of Ungit, and how unlike. No comments? All right, fine. <laughs> I don't have a lot to say yet. I, we're, we're, because we're pushing up on time, I'm like, let's, I'm going to wait for the meat, which is now coming. Then the queen meets the priest. She describes him as an old man with quiet eyes, perhaps a little simple. And the priest tells her that the, the patroness of the temple is the goddess Istra. And I remember reading this to Marie... And there was a sharp intake of breath when that name was mentioned. (gasps) And the priest says that she's a very young goddess. She's only just begun to be a goddess. And like many of the gods, she was once mortal. And for a bit of cash, the priest then starts telling the queen of the story of how this girl became a goddess. He begins, Once upon a time, in a certain land, there lived a king and a queen who had three daughters. And the youngest was the most beautiful princess in the whole world. When I read that out, it was like, oh, this is starting to sound familiar. And he continues to tell the story. And we start seeing how this is basically the story of Orwell and Psyche. But there are some important differences. Uh, Both of the sisters go up the mountain. uh, And also both of them see the palace. And the queen wants to know how he knows this story. But all he says is, well, this is the sacred story. 
And she gets really angry when he starts telling the story wrong. And naturally, the queen wants to know how he knows this story. But all he can say is, well, this is the sacred story. And she gets particularly angry when he gives these details that are wrong, that are incorrect. And she blames the gods because she knows that these are the only people who would know any of these details. And they had told the story to this priest incorrectly to make her look bad. And this is where we learn a lot about the key parts of the story, because this is more or less Lewis's way of offering a different perspective or more of the truth. So we can actually see what did somewhat happen, I guess. But before unpacking what I mean by that, I actually thought it was interesting in the beginning when she's hearing the story, she actually says it's not moving her as it would have 15 years ago. So she's essentially saying she knows this story is a little wrong. It's about her, but it's not really frustrating her in the beginning. And I like how she says as of 15 years ago, it's like, well, I've grown. I've become more secure. My false self is stronger. I've walled myself up. This doesn't affect me because she's buried her whole self. But then it says, as you point out, the blood starts rushing to her face. And it was just like, I mentioned in the very beginning of this episode, notice how your false self, you can never, or your true self, or that identity that you've buried, I guess, the buried self, you can never keep it down. Something will trigger it. So she's essentially spent her whole life protecting herself from the truth of the story. Remember, she's lied. We, we noticed that along the way. She sees the palace, but she doesn't tell anyone. She essentially starts to believe that she never saw the palace. And as she's now has to, face i guess reality that she did lie and it's it's like she has to protect it like this self that we put on in life there's a big lesson there that you constantly have to protect and maintain it that's what's happening right here so she's furious and what's interesting is the two big one of the big revelations here is one of the mistakes was that both sisters went but the one that really got her in this story was that she saw the palace Mm mm-hmm And so she argues that the story should have been, it was a riddle, you didn't know if you did, it wasn't very clear, and yet here he goes, it was clear. And not only that, he says that the sisters were jealous of her. Yes, well, that's because that's because, well, before that, she counters and she goes, well, if she saw the palace, why would she have done what you say later she did, which is betray Psyche? And she, she doesn't think that's a logical next step. If she saw the palace, she would believe it's true and she would want the best for Psyche. And that's where he comes in and he says, no, jealousy. And that just sets her off. Because that's the truth of this entire book. Like if you had to sum this up, it's a jealous love. That's what this has been all about. She doesn't like seeing Psyche, someone she put her whole identity, her whole self-worth in, Loving something else more than her. And that just, she can't stand it. It sets her off. So that's why she needs to write this book. I remember this one comment in there where she says, um, I bet these sisters would have another perspective. And the priest goes, the priest goes, I bet they would too. Jealous people tend to have a lot to say. My wife, for instance. (laughs) So here, all this is to say, summing that little bit up there, is this is where we see the entire crux of the argument. 
the gods and what this priest is putting forward is she did see the palace. She should have known it and her jealousy stopped it. Her argument is, did I see it? I don't know. We actually had one of our episodes called the riddle of psyche, the riddle of Orwell and, or was it the riddle of psyche? Riddle of psyche. Riddle of psyche. Hey, see, I'm close always. (laughs) And, and that's what it comes down to her. Like I literally circled the riddle because it wrote it in here and she goes, if only the gods, why can't we live in a world where the gods show the other way? You know, they make it clearer. They make it, you don't have to guess. That's what this all comes down to for her. Do you think she's justified in that? Do you think, even though we know what we do as an outside reader, like maybe she's fair in saying it was a mirage or it was just fleeting or, or do you have no sympathy and she saw it and she should have accepted it? I have some sympathy because in my own life, God, quite often isn't as clear as I'd like him to be. But at the same time, hopefully I treat the evidence more fairly than Orwell did. Yes. Yeah. And hopefully like Psyche, I know the goodness of God and therefore know that sometimes when he remains hidden, perhaps it's for a very good reason that I can't yet understand. And I think too here, you could argue that it was a fleeting image, but you also have to state that she, it was fleeting image because of all of the decisions she made that led up to that point. So I, we've talked about this in the Skype sessions before, but just that role of preparing your heart to receiving grace and to receiving Christ and to being able to have eyes that can see, like that doesn't just happen overnight. You, when you, you do those practices, when you enter into communion with God, when you, you orient your heart in the proper way, that starts to happen more naturally. And so she had done so much to wall herself up before that moment that it, it did become hard for her to see. It's heavily in hellish creatures all over again. Yeah, there you go. That's what I was trying to say with a bunch of words. <laughs> the, the one thing that was nice about the priest story is in this, we have a hint that Cupid and Psyche get to be together at last because the priest says that every, every spring that they take off the veil from the statue and he changes his liturgical vestments. What you, what's interesting here is exactly what you said. She, the priest points out that once Psyche completes all these tasks that Unget puts on Psyche, that she's reunited with Unget's son and Orwell jumps on this and said, wait, has that reuniting happened already or is it happening or will it? And the priest is just like, it happens every year over and over with our ritual. It's like, oh, that's not what I'm asking. Because she knows that this is like a real story. And she honestly herself, that feels really guilty for what she did to Psyche. Like, well, maybe she's back in communion. And maybe in part two, we'll find out the answer to that. Okay, folks. So next week, it's going to be an episode with Andrew Lazo, where he's going to be addressing all of the questions that people have been sending him in Slack just a reminder to folks, if you give us more than five bucks a month, you get access to our Slack channel, which means that you can submit questions to Andrew for the episodes when we have him on. So we're going to have him on next week, and then we're going to have two more episodes completing part two, and then we'll have him on again. So if you have a question you want him to answer, sign up on Patreon and send him a message. Mm-hmm. And not to be nitpicky, David said five, more than $5, five or more. Thank you for correct in my language <laughs> i was just gonna say i can't wait till we get to this next book i actually forgot i have a i have a rough remembrance of what it was but now it's honestly been what three months since i read it if not four 
I was back in San Diego when I read this through. And so this, now that I, I've never read this part, knowing as much as we know about book one. So this is going to be fascinating. Now I'm really excited. <laughs> well, that's today's episode. We'd obviously like to thank our top tier patrons, Kate Farrow and Rowdy Stilwell for supporting us on Patreon. And please join us next week when we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>